I, I, I used to take every night, I used to grab a cup of coffee and go to a different group of Contras. And I would sit down, I would say, why are you here? Not one ever said, oh, well, I read Marx and Lenin and I'm totally against that philosophy. It was, they burnt my church down. They beat up my priest. They raped my daughter. They forced conscripted my 15 year old son. It was all personal. It all resonated to me. And one of the things that, that uh, I always told my kids, I said, you know, during my career in the agency, not once did I wake up in the morning and go, oh, man, I got to go to work. Not once. Not in almost 25 years. Welcome to a special edition of the Driving Force podcast. I'm your host, Chase Rosen. This episode will be a bit of a departure from the sports, business, and wellness realms, which most of my guests fall into in one way or another. Today's guest is Rick Prado. Rick is a paramilitary, counterterrorism, and clandestine operations specialist with a focus on international training operations and programs. He is a 24-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency, where he served as an operations officer in six overseas posts. He was deputy chief of station and plank owner of the original Bin Laden task force, as well as chief of station in a hostile Muslim country. Rick also served as chief of operations in the CIA's counterterrorist center during the September 11th attacks, where he helped coordinate the CTC's special operations activities with the National Security Council and FBI, as well as with elite U.S. military representatives from Delta Force and SEAL Team 6, then detailed to CDC. He retired as Senior Intel Service 2, the major general equivalent at the CIA. Rick's new book, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior, hits bookstores on March 1st and details his life and career conducting some of the most important covert wars that America has fought since Vietnam. In this interview, we'll dive deep into the contents of the book. And so, without further ado, my interview with Rick Prado. Rick, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's my honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm glad we could finally make this happen. You know, it's been well, maybe over a year in the making. Um, our mutual friend, Tony Negron, made the intro for me to you. So very, very excited to get this conversation going. Thank you. Me here too. Yeah. So I want to get into just your process of writing this book and the why behind why you wrote the book. So like, first of all, like how long of a process was writing this book for you and like start to finish? Well, you know, the, the book started uh, just as me taking notes from my family. My sons came to me and said, uh, look, dad, we don't know what the hell you did for a living. You know, and you're not going to tell us. So why don't you write it? And when you die, at least we get to read it. <laughs> so I started making it truly. So I started making an outline, both are in the military. And um, Colford Black, who was my boss on several incarnations, kept telling me, you have to write a book. And I go, I'm not I'm not ready for that. I'm not I'm not going to write a book. Too long of a story, but eventually uh, he wore me down and, and between Steve Cole and, and um, Andy Jacobson, um, they dragged me into um, writing the book. So it took, it took a good two years, uh, not so much, not only for writing, um, but for getting it past the uh, approvals of the agency. My book is fully cleared by the, by the CIA. So that, I can talk about anything that's in that book uh, without any concerns. The, uh, the reason behind it, though, is, um, you know, I, I usually start some of my public speaking by asking how many, name me two movies that portray CIA in a positive light. 
It's, it's hard for me to come up with one. <laughs> I, 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 I rest my case. Argo is it's arguably one of the few that is, okay? And, and, and the, that was the problem that I had. You know, my, my agency is the most maligned of all federal agencies. You know, and our, our case officers, they're described as immoral, corrupt, you know, maniacal assassins, uh, and nothing could be further the, from the truth. So the book, which starts with my life, obviously, as, as a kid in Cuba, communism, that theme kind of uh, permeates the, uh, my life. Um, but it was, it, was, it was a way of trying to be their voice, by my colleagues' voices, because I mean, I've, I've met so many incredible men and women in the agency in, in the 24 and a half years that I did there, that they deserve better because, you know, we have 137 stars on that wall of people that have given their lives. And for a small organization, remember, CIA may be this big, military is this big, our ops side is this big, if that. Uh, 137, and a third of those are all post 9-11, and some of those I knew personally. So I take umbrage when people, you know, compare us to American Made and Jason Bourne. Uh, you know, in, in the book, in, in, in Black Ops, you will see and you will experience real CIA operations, really sexy stuff, nothing like Jason Bourne. And you will see it performed by real operations officers under the limitations and the realities that we all operate in. So, Yeah. And when you mentioned the, the small upside of the CIA, does that have to do with, you know, not really being able to see to receive any praise when th when something goes right but when something goes wrong it seems like all the press goes to you to the it, cia it, that, that well that, that is a, a very astute observation uh, because uh chase because the fbi could have ruby ridge today and tomorrow they shoot dillinger right so they 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 have a way of advertising their in our business we have a flap and it makes it out uh we're we're dirtied and uh you know, six months later, we recruit Putin's secretary, but we can't tell anybody. So uh, right. it, it is, it is, it is. Uh, but the, the other side, there's another side of the coin. And that's partially why I not only wrote the book, um, I'm very proud of how much the agency allowed for me to say in black ops about the agency. And I think that they saw where I was coming from. And, and, and that is that we are, the agency is media phobic. And, if, for, and what happens is then you have the media and the novels, they, 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 full, they fill up the psyche of what the agency is supposed to be like. And I think that the agency needs to be a little bit more open once the things, like my book, like I said, is fully approved. That means they, th these operations we could talk about. And we need more of that. We need people to understand what the agency does, and most importantly, the ethos of my colleagues. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. And I wanted to get into that, like be the CIA being such a you know secretive organization, it's hard to really instill for people to really have full trust of something that's just so secretive, right? And um, so for you being able to really get into some detail in terms of you know the missions you were on and getting into a lot more detail into the agency as you write in the book was, was very, um, was very interesting. So like, what were some of the strategies you maybe employed while writing to try and make, maybe like sway people to trust in the CIA more, if that makes sense. 
Well, I think if there's an educational proce uh, process or uh, that, that we or effort that we should mount the agency, not just, you know, not just me, uh, to allow the right stories to, to come out. And I'll give you an example that really, that was one of the tipping points also for the book. Uh, I'm sure you saw the movie 12 Strong. Okay. Actually, have, no, I have not actually. Well, the 12 Strong is it's a movie about first boots on the ground uh, in Afghanistan. And uh, I went to the theater to see the movie. And when I walked out two hours later, I couldn't talk. I was so angry because the first 12 boots on the ground were CIA boots. Four of them were my puppies. And in that movie, they only showed the Green Beret guys doing the stuff that everybody did. And it wasn't the, it wasn't the theater. It wasn't, it was the agency that turned down participation. The, uh, and I know for this firsthand, the producers went to the Green Berets and then of course said, hell yeah. They went to Task Force 160th, our elite pilots. And they said, you, you pay for the fuel, we provide everything else. They came to the agency and the agency said, no, we don't, we, we don't want to talk about that. We have books out there, agency cleared books that detail when that first helicopter of Green Berets, two helicopters of Green Berets came into Afghanistan, it was my guys bringing them in. And we lost some of those folks, Mike Spann for one of them. And I think that we owe that story. That, that movie was so well done except that they only showed the 12 Green Berets. And they showed a CIA guy on a donkey with bags full of money. That was the only credit given to the agency for, for that, through that whole movie. Uh, we need to do much better than that for our people. We sacrifice too much and it's, uh, it's an ungrateful enough mission um, without being maligned, without being able to defend ourselves when we can. Yeah. Yeah, and um, continuing on this thread of, uh, I guess, Hollywood kind of making a mess of what, I guess, the CIA kind of truly is and what they do. They do a great, they do a great job of over-dramatizing everything, right? Because it's Hollywood. Yeah, that's um, like, but in terms of like the job of a, of a covert officer, right? You're, you're officers, not agents, right? And that's probably would love to get, get into that distinction too. Um, it's a lot more, your job is much more discreet and all of that. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, we, we're called operations officers or case officers. Uh, operations officers, I think, is the most in vogue. Um, we do not, agents are the people that we recruit. So we have agents, but these are the people, foreign nationals, that we recruit to provide us the intelligence that, that, uh, that our country needs to defend itself. Right. And if you go, um, I think as you put in the book, kinetic in, in real life, something really went wrong. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and, and don't get me wrong. We do some pointy end stuff also. You know, we had doing renditions. I've done a couple. But the, um, the majority of our work is subtle, is discreet, um, and is successful only if not, nobody knows that it happened. And the minute you do this and you go for that weapon, you're done. I mean, even if you survive the incident, um, you're now compromised somehow and your mission is, is, is done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, like with these movies too, um, I think you, you talk about talking about the book too, about these enhanced interrogation techniques and how they've, they've contrib yeah, contributed to 
kind of this uh, making a mess of what the picture, the perception of the CIA, like at least in movies, like to me as the the person watching it, it almost seems like borderline, if not straight torture, what these <laughs> uh, what they portray these people to do. So. Um, I guess, what do you have to say about the use of these enhanced interrogation techniques having actually, you know, been in the actually, CIA? You you hit a, a, a very important point for me. I, I was out of the agency by the time that these enhanced interrogations were used. But first of all, the perception the Americans have of the interrogations came out of Abu Ghraib. Uh, we had nothing to do with Abu Ghraib. Uh, that was the army. They were doing some stupid things, uh, over-enthusiastic, and it, it was badly done. The agency, when it was our turn to have to do these things, we went to the enhanced interrogations. And what most people don't understand, enhanced interrogations come from a program called SEER, which is where we send all our special operations guys, pilots, etc. I've been through it twice. And in there, you have enhanced interrogations. My, 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 uh, my running, um, we had a week out in the field where we had to eat, you know, whatever, kill a rabbit and eat it and all this kind of crap. <laughs> you come back for a day and then you go out on exercise and we were literally kidnapped. Bags over our heads, thrown on the ground, handcuffed, six or eight brutes guy for every, every two of us and they throw you in. They threw me in a box that's about the size of a phone book. I couldn't even stand up. I'm five foot seven. I couldn't stand up. Uh, two buckets, uh, one for one and one for two. And music playing all the time. And this went on for days. This was gone, gone for a better part of three, four days before they take you out in the open. And all these wear you down, don't feed you, in, being interrogated constantly is that's where all these enhanced interrogations come from. The training of our heroes, our warriors get trained to be able to survive that kind of treatment. And that's all that we employed. You know, when, when the agency did the, the waterboarding, which is the torture part, um, it was under clinical circumstances. Guys were on a gurney, there was a doctor and it was very, very cleanly done. Uh, and did it work? Yes, it did. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't care who you are, sooner or later, you'll start singing when it comes to that stuff. But uh, there, there is no pain in the sense of pulling fingernails or, you know, the, our, our enemy's way of doing things, cut this guy's throat so the next guy talks. That's torture also. Right. So, uh, yeah, it is. Uh, thank you for allowing me to bring that up, because that is something that I really hope people understand that, first of all, we're at a war. And, and war has to have different kind of rules. But these were approved by the, the Department of Justice and our methodology was clinical. Interesting. That's very interesting. So you would have a, there would be an, like an actual doctor in the room monitoring yeah. everything. Oh, yeah, we had people from our medical services there. Um, and there, there's a uh, Kali Sheikh Mohammed, according to uh, my friend, Jose Rodriguez would count on his fingers because he knew that they would only do this for 10 seconds. <laughs> you could see him next to the gurney counting, trying to hold off because he knew that the, 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 it was going to stop. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay, cool. Let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit and get into uh, more of the book and we'll okay. start from the beginning and your life growing up in Cuba. 
uh, quite a turbulent time to say the least uh, growing up in Cuba in the late 1950s. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I was born in 51. Uh, yes, I'm that old. And uh, I was probably, I think, eight when Castro took over. But the town that I lived in was at the foothills of the mountains where Che Guevara was. When, when you would come down the mountain, the first town that you would hit was my town. So the rebels hit my town several times. And, and uh, there's, there's a couple of uh, vignettes in the book of be seeing you know, firefights going on and, and people getting shot and all this kind of stuff. And then fast forward to, you know, after, after uh, January of 59, when Fidel actually takes over, seeing how quickly the, uh, the, 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 the whole system changed and the whole, the, the oppression began. Um, I, I literally saw in Havana with my parents, people hanging from trees with signs that said counter-revolutionaries. Counter um, the, uh, the oppression, the interrogations uh, were quite severe. And of course, the confiscation of property and, and, and everything that went with it. I mean, everything had to be socialized. So um, my dad decided very early on that he was not gonna have his only child live in, in communism. And I, I use my dad in, as, as an example because my dad never read Lenin or Marx. Um, he had seventh grade education. But he was a brave man with a brave heart. And uh, when my oldest son turned 10, I, I asked my wife, I said, do you think that we would have the testicular fortitude to put our son on an airplane to go to a country that we do not never set foot in, don't speak the language, and don't even know if we could follow him? And that's what my parents did uh, to get me out of there. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, I, I ended up at a orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado. Uh, where uh, discipline was harsh and so were the fights. And um, I, I, uh, uh, I learned pretty quickly how to defend myself and, and get some buddies to help me out. So, so I think that that whole process of seeing my family destroyed, my first country destroyed, um, the masses of kids that, that, were, that I saw at, at the camps where they, they were Cuban kids, um, I think that that set kind of like the beginning of my path to, to, to try to fight these kind of, of, of monsters and the experiences of both Cuba and, and flying out. You know, I, I literally turned 11 in, in the orphanage. Uh, didn't see my parents for almost nine months. And that steals you or breaks you. So they didn't break me. Yeah. 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 That's it's crazy. The, the, the stories that you have um, in, in the book, there's one where, thinking right when you were seven years old, there's this uh, guerrilla fighter that's on your porch um, firing rounds. And that talk about how that moment had a big impact on kind of your, your life trajectory and what you're drawn towards, like that sense of adventure. It almost appealed to you in a way. Yeah, I, uh, my, my parents had gone to dinner at a town uh, in the, the capital, actually, which was 30 miles from us. And I was with a nanny. And this was the second firefight that I had heard in, in the town because there was a bar in the corner where a lot of the police and military guys hung out. So I, I, I walked up to the window and there was these jealousy windows. I opened the jealousy window up. I can't see that under the parapet, there was a guy with a fully automatic something. And all of a sudden he lets out this incredible burst. And you know, it's funny, it's there. Auditory exclusion, a tunnel vision. The only thing I remember 
wasn't the sound of the gun as much as the shells cascading down the glass jealousy uh, windows. And um, yeah, that, that was an attention getter. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it was. <laughs> I, I was probably seven or eight at the time. Not even now. I was, yeah, I was seven. Yeah, that's crazy. And uh, you almost got sent to the Soviet Union <laughs> too? Yeah, what happened was I, I was in a private school in Santa Clara, which was the capital of the province that we lived in. And um, my, my uncle, who was a socialist actually, uh, was a professor at that school, Colegio Martí. And he, he found out that they had a list of kids that they were going to submit to go to, to Russia for, for higher education. And my name was on that list. And that also precipitated my dad trying to get me the hell out of Cuba. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. Um, I mean, I just couldn't imagine the toll this must have taken on your, your parents at the time, like you were you mentioning before, like you seemed, and I mean, you seem to take it as well as a 10 year old could have, could have taken it. But I mean, for them, like just, wow. <laughs> Anything yeah, you do for yeah, your yeah, kid, yeah. right? Well, you know, and, and, and Chase, that's a very, very good point. And thank you, because that helps me uh, show the metal that my parents had and the conviction. It destroyed my mom. My mom was never the same after that episode. I'm an only child. I don't have brothers and sisters. I'm the only kid they had. And they, they put me on an airplane, not for financial reasons, uh, because believe me, we were middle class in Cuba. You know, my dad had a 57 Pontiac, a TV and a f telephone in the house when Castro took over. And when we came to the United States, we were below the poverty line. But yeah, it, it's that innate feeling for freedom. And the sacrifice was, I, I literally, I literally have a guilt aspect of it because I've been blessed by this country coming to the United States, living in the best country in the world and joining an elite military unit like Pararescue and then going into an elite organization like the CIA and, and rising to the, to the senior ranks, I, can, I pinch myself. I sit there and I go, what did I do to deserve all these blessings? But I never forget that the real sacrifice wasn't mine. My sacrifice was my parents. I still remember clearly as I'm getting, about to get on that airplane, my mom crying and my dad biting his lip because he didn't cry. <laughs> you don't forget that. Yeah. Wow. And on and with your parents too, um, like the impact that they had on you, like what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned from them that have helped you, you know, throughout your life and throughout your CIA career? You know, my, my dad was a, uh, like I said, he did not have higher education, but he had great people skills. He was actually a cowboy before he married my mom. And I'm talking about lassoing cattle and everything else. I had a house before I had a bicycle. So um, that, that was the culture from my town. It was a cow town. And, uh, but my dad always brought me up to be the little man. You know, this is what a man does. This is how you behave. This is how you protect your family. This is how you, you, you believe in your God. And by example, my dad was a natural networking guy. My, my father made good friends that when my dad passed away, people came out of the woodwork, people that I didn't even know. And I think that that's something that helped me tremendously because through him, I learned how to deal with people and how to, you know, be good enough to them that they, they, they're good enough to you.
my mom uh, on, on the other side was, um, she loved to read. Uh, my mom was always perfectly coiffed, uh, nails done, hair done. And um, so I got a little bit of that from her, you know, the being able to dress up and, and uh, reading is a passion of mine, um, including uh, in, in those early 60s, uh, every, every James Bond novel that I could, you know, buy, borrow or steal. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I did a lot of reading there and, and I'm sure that that has something to do with uh, later in life. But uh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. So you you grew up in, or spent part of your your childhood growing up in the U.S., um, spending time in orphanages, and then uh, you know going to Miami, where you became a a bit of a Miami bad boy. <laughs> yeah, I you know it, it, it more like a jerk uh, than anything else. You know, it's you know you you hit your testosterone laden teens. You are wired, whether it was by birth or by the things that I went through as a kid to not take crap from people and, and to be a little bit on the cocky side. I got into the martial arts. I started, I started uh, Kyokushin Karate when I was 15 years old. And um, so, you know, for me, lifting weights and, and getting in a fight was, was kind of like the thing we did on the weekends. You know, you go to a party and somebody would mouth off and a fight would start. And so I was never doing anything, you know, I never robbed the bank or anything like that, but it was just being stupid. And, 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 I, and I gravitated towards the wrong crowd because for me, at uh, that time, you're talking the, the mid to late 60s, kids are smoking dope. I wasn't a pothead. I was too busy working out and going to the dojo and, and doing my stuff. And so were my, 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 the friends that I hung up with, but they were, they were rough. They were, they were a lot rougher than, than I was in, in that sense. So that, that, that went on through most of high school. I got good grades, but you know, I got suspended for fighting and this kind of crap. But um, my first semester of college was a, uh, an, a eureka moment for me because uh, I had just started uh, my, my first semester and this was the hippie years. This is 1970, early, uh, late 70, early 71. And um, the hippies say that they were going to uh, take down the American flag tomorrow and burn it. And I went, uh, no, they're not. So I picked up the phone, called a couple of my buddies from that neighborhood, and they came over. They weren't even in the same college. It was six of us. There was about 20 hippies, and it wasn't a fair fight for them. Beads and torn T-shirts on the ground, but that flag was still, was still flying. And, you know, Chase, that was the first time in my life that I felt good after a fight because I had a purpose. I joined Pararescue less than six months later. Right. Right. S something more than some guy mouthing off at a party. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Having a yeah. purpose. And I yeah. think that, that that's pretty much mapped for the rest of my life. Everything that I did had to have a higher purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to your time training Kyokushin Karate. Um, I've trained martial arts my whole life, so it's been a, you know, big part of my life and jujitsu is one of my main things now. And it's just so important to me. So I'd love to, to hear how karate and getting into karate kind of impacted you at that time. And maybe, uh, throughout the rest of your life as well in martial arts. Yeah. It, I started all three of my kids when they were little for that same reason. Uh, all my kids have advanced degrees in different martial arts disciplines because they started at five, six, seven. 
I started when I was 15. Um, my, both my uh, senseis, my instructors were local police officers, Leo Thalassidis and Jim Alfano, um, both former Marines. Uh, Jim was a Vietnam vet and, and, and Leo was a uh, uh, World War II vet in the Pacific. And, you know, there were role models. I mean, these guys were rough and tumble and everybody knew who they were and nobody messed with them. And to tell you the truth, the hardest training martial arts I ever had was those early years under Jim Alfano. He was really, really, uh, and, and Kyokushin is a very hard style. It was a very hit you once, kind of try to take you out kind of stuff. Uh, I stayed in the martial arts for most of my life, but because of jumping around both in the military and then in, in the agency, I made it a habit of when I got to a new town, I would start visiting all the schools and I didn't care what they were teaching. I just cared on the quality of the instruction. So, you know, in some places I did Taekwondo for, for so I got a black belt in Taekwondo from the World Taekwondo Federation. And in uh, others were, well, was Judo and in other ones were, you know, so I, 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 it was eclectic. And I remember we were doing some training in the agency at one time before one of our deployments. And uh, one of the guys comes up to me and says, Sir, you know, I've been watching you and I can't figure out what your, what your, what your uh, style is. What, what, what's your discipline? And I yeah. laughed and I told him, I said, yeah, you know, I've, I've been a dabbler by necessity all my, all my life. Because, uh, you know, I had a Muay Thai stance, but I'm doing Taekwondo kicks or something like that. So yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great. I love it. Yeah. Um, so about six months after that fight where uh, with, a, with the hippies, as he said, you joined you join the PJs, um, maybe just for the people listening, kind of describe what the PJs are essentially. Well, you know, para, para rescue is, uh, one of two, uh, of the special operations forces in the air force. Um, you know, green berets, uh, Marine Raiders seals for each respect the service. And then for the air force, you have para rescue and combat controllers. Um, our, our washout rate is commensurate with any of the other soft units. Uh, and primarily, I mean, we train in scuba diving, skydiving, mountain climbing, of course, you know, weapons and, and helicopters and all that other stuff. But primarily, we're high-end medics. We are very uh, accomplished paramedics um, that we will go in harm's way to bring our people back. And as a matter of fact, that was our job in Vietnam was primarily bringing down down pilots or you know, recon teams that had gone out there and gotten compromised. So, but like the, pretty much the rest of my life and my career, it wasn't a choice. It was, uh, that particular fight uh, opened my eyes to the purpose, but I didn't have an outlet because I had never met anybody in the military. And I was in a class with this guy that I met, Glenn Richardson, and he, he had been a PJ. He was a PJ. He was a PJ. And he's the one that recruited me uh, into the, uh, into that fold. And, uh, I'm very proud of that. I, I uh, would have not gotten into the agency uh, if I had not been a pararescue medic. Yeah. Yeah. And as, uh, as a PJ, was that where you met uh, Tony Negron? No, Tony is, uh, is a lot younger than I am. I've, I've met Tony at some of the reunions. Um, my main instructor uh, at the end when we were doing we, our uh, final phase was uh, at the time was at Hill Air Force Base. Uh, we call it transition training. And um, that's when I got my beret in, in uh, 92, uh, November of 92. The head guy there was a guy named Wayne Fisk. He is legendary in pararescue. He's, you know, uh, 
he's we, we I always say that he's the Billy Waugh of pararescue. Um, and um, Wayne started the company that Tony eventually purchased and now runs. Yeah. Oh, SCI. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, I actually took my guys to a lot of my guys through there when Wayne was running it, but yeah. Oh, very cool. Okay. Interesting. Um, so you joined uh, right after Vietnam. Is that right? I went into pararescue in late 71, but because of the length of our pipeline, by the time I got out, Vietnam was being pretty much. Oh, okay. Got and, uh, you know, at that time they were really trying to shrink the military. So the reserves was uh, where, where I ended up with uh, after training. Uh, although I did a year there at Homestead uh, full time, I was there for a whole year as a PJ training with the, with the pilots. Um, but then we remained in, in, the, uh, in the Air Force uh, for another, I think I did six years in, in pararescue. And then I did a little time with the National Guard, uh, mm -hmm. Army National Guard. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the biggest takeaways and lessons learned from uh, being in pararescue for you? Yeah, you know, I um, I thought I was a tough kid uh, until I went to pararescue. I realized <laughs> that holy moly, I got some toughening up to do because um, the the the, uh, the training is brutal, uh, just like all our 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 soft our special operations forces is. Um, I think one of the things that set us apart back then more than now was that. For example, Green Berets, even now, they do not have to go through scuba school to get their, 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 you know, their beret. Uh, in pararescue, like the SEALs, you have to be scuba qualified. And scuba, quali scuba school is always the hardest thing we ever go through. I mean, that is the, the real equalizer um, because there's a lot of uh, great athletes that you put their head under the water and they don't function. So um, the, uh, I think that it, 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 uh, it was so, so challenging and so demanding that again, it, it steals your metal, you know? And, and uh, I will tell you, after you go through that kind of training, it, there's a confidence that I can do this. I, I, can, I can survive this. I've been through worse. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And you, um, you had a little bit of scuba I guess, background before going in, right? Yeah, that helped a lot. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, uh, the, uh, my second job was working at Arby's and there was a, uh, um, a marine uh, demo diver, Ronda Romo, who was the manager of, of uh, Arby's and he was a Vietnam vet and he was just, he was a badass. The guy was a biker and just, you know, just a, uh, a real, uh, and uh, he's the one that taught me how to dive in my freshman year of high school. Because I mean, of course, I, I grew up reading, you know, watching Sea Hunt and all these things, and, and diving was always something I was fascinated with. But he's the one that actually taught me how to dive, and uh, even in my freshman and in, in, in junior year, sophomore year, when uh, kids would skip school to go smoke pot, I would go skip school to go scuba diving. So yeah, 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 that's that's very cool. So let's get into your transition now into the the CIA. It walk walk us through uh, leaving pay rescue and ultimately uh, the day you got that call. Yeah, um, when when I realized I was not going to go to Vietnam, um, I put in I, I wrote a letter to the agency. This was about 1974, and at the time, I don't know if you know the history, but that was post Vietnam years, and the attrition at the agency was incredible. And so they wrote me back a real nice letter. 
basically saying, uh, we're firing, not hiring. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I let it go. And um, now that I was in the reserves full time, um, I joined uh, the Metro Dade County Fire Department because one of my PJ uh, teammates was the captain for the rescue for Metro Miami, for Metro Dade County. And uh, I mean, I literally, I mean, yeah, I did some firefighting, but for the, but most of the six years that I did, um, I was a paramedic. So come around 1980-ish, uh, early 80, I uh, wrote to the agency again. I said, hey, you know, I'm Air America, man. I'll do anything. I just want to go out there. And, 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 uh, and this time they came back and they said, well, look, we're not hiring staff, but if you're willing to do some contract work as a medic, we have this thing called Ground Branch uh, out of Special Activities Division, which is the soft uh, component of the paramilitary component for CIA. And uh, they said, you know, they, we, we, we're in dire need of, of medics with your background, not only as a medic, but the fact that, you know, you know how to jump out of airplanes, you know how to scuba dive, you know how to do all this stuff. And um, so I did that for three or four rotations, you know, 30 days, two weeks kind of stuff. And, but I knew I wasn't going to get hired. And so I backed off. I said, I'm not going to lose my, my, my job for, uh, for taking too much time off. And then the Sandinista program, uh, the end, you know, the Contra program against the Sandinista, the communist kind of, uh, Sandinista regime in, in Nicaragua kicked in. And as soon as Reagan came in, literally within days, uh, he blessed that, that Contra uh, program. Well, the agency at the time did not have a, a, a single native Spanish speaking individual with paramilitary background. And they're all going, who was that Cuban kid? Remember the PJ? <laughs> that was the first PJ in, in, in the agency. And uh, there's been a couple of others that, that, that I know about, but I was the first one. And um, they contacted me. And this was, uh, I, I believe, was early 81-ish or sometime in 81. And they called me up and they, they said, listen, we might have something for you. And I said, I got one question. Is it short term or long term? They said long term. I said, I don't care what it is. I'm in. I had just gotten divorced, so it was, it was a rough time for me anyway. And I went and straight into the Contra program, uh, living in the uh, border camps between Nicaragua and Honduras, very porous border. You really didn't know if you were in one country or the other. Uh, you could only control it through your own you know, uh, security. And um, there were 10 camps. I used to do two camps a week. And for the first 14 months of that program, I was the only CIA officer allowed in the camps. So I slept in a jungle hammock for pretty much three years, uh, Monday through Friday. I used to get, be able to come home on, on, on a Friday night or Saturday morning. Interesting. Yeah, and I definitely definitely want to get into your time helping train the, the Contras and your, your time in Honduras. But uh, before I do this, uh, one thing I want to touch on, um, the, you mentioned you got divorced um, prior, prior to joining, but you eventually met uh, Carmen and what's interesting about what I find interesting about that relationship is that you it almost thrived during your time in the CIA where you kind of hear a lot of times where relationships fall apart, you know, when people people yeah. in the CIA, but you seem to have the opposite sort of experience. I, I, well, I, I was blessed with um, with a wife that was also Cuban and saw a lot of what I saw. She's younger. She's younger by about five years. And, uh, and she, she left Cuba later than I did. So she witnessed a lot of the shortages and her father was badly abused. Her father was an educated man, college graduate. 
uh, sent out to sh cut sugarcane and, and that kind of stuff. So sh they, they suffered a lot uh, financially and, and finding food and everything else. So she understood better than the average person what I was fighting for. Um, and she herself stepped up to the plate. If you read the book, you know, she did a couple of cool things for us yeah. in support of things for, for harebrained ideas of mine. And, uh, but she's always been um, a bastion there and, and, and always had my uh, overwatch. And the, um, you know, I, I, I say to people that no matter how successful you are, you end up gauging your life by your offspring. And all three of my kids are in some form of service. Um, both my boys are military. My daughter is a, was a school principal for years and runs two schools. So I, I think that they were listening, uh, that they were watching more than they were listening. Because so yeah, very proud of that. But yeah, thank you for uh, for bringing my wife uh, Carmen's name up there because uh, she deserves a lot of credit. Any, anybody that could put up with me for for thirty nine years, the saying is at least Buddhahood. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. So now getting into the the contras now. Um, you provided like a nice little. Uh, overview of the, of the situation going on but talk to me more about the exact environment like you're operating in like I'm, I'm picturing like you're basically almost in this jungle environment yeah it, it is it was obviously had to be in areas that were very um, isolated and uh, so we could train and and and, and usually high ground uh, deeply forested area especially in the mosquitia the uh, the eastern side of uh, of the Nicaragua uh, Honduras border where the Mosquito Indians and um, Mosquito Sumo and Rama Indians live. Um, it was, like I said, I literally slept in a jungle hammock during any time that I was at the camps. And uh, I would train them on everything, for, especially for the first 14 months. I was the only one training them on RPG-7s, headspace and timing on a, 40, uh, on a 50 cal, patrolling, uh, you know, all, everything, medical stuff. And, uh, and then facilitating intelligence for okay look here's a place that you could try to hit or you know helping them with that kind of things providing them with communications and so on but i will tell you um the contrast between when i first set foot in the first camp to when i left three and three months later um three years and three months later um it was a very big difference our guys were all in uniform they had fouls they had training uh, they had medical units, they had doctors working there. Each camp had nurses and doctors and we had uh, medical centers strategically placed so the guys could come out and, and when we started the, the, uh, the offensive of sending our guys in and regaining some of that territory, um, we would mount hospitals and stuff like that in enemy lines to, to, to continue. So uh, I'm, I'm very proud of that and you know, I, I've, you read the book, I've had a, a, a blessed life, but that has to be the best job I ever had because it was really personal. Right. You got to understand that I, I, I used to take every night, I used to grab a cup of coffee and go to a different group of Contras. And I would sit down and I would say, why are you here? Not one ever said, oh, well, I read Marx and Lenin and I am totally against that philosophy. It was... They burnt my church down. They beat up my priest. They raped my daughter. They forced conscripted my 15 year old son. It was all personal. It all resonated to me. And one of the things that, that uh, I always told my kids, I said, you know, 
during my career in the agency, not once did I wake up in the morning and go, oh, man, I got to go to work. Not once, not in almost 25 years. And living under these conditions, which I look back now and I'm going like, boy, you're really stupid. Uh, you know, um, it was rough. I mean, roughly, I, I ate what they ate. I got super sick. I was medevaced. I had giardia, um, amoeba, dysentery, amoeba, all kinds of crap that I, that, I, that I caught out there. But it was rewarding because I saw what that monster, that octopus did to my first country and to my family. And now I'm, I'm, I'm participating in being able to take some of those tentacles off the octopus. And, and that made it very, uh, that resonated with me a lot. Yeah. Yeah, you can completely, completely understand what, what they're going through there's so much conviction in in your mission you kind of really just found your calling which is something that i think everyone would want in their vocation or their career would be such a powerful sort of i guess conviction in, in what they're doing so so yeah i definitely definitely get it thank you yeah i mean reading the stories in the book you definitely saw some some action uh down there in uh in honduras it, i mean parts felt like they could definitely be in a Hollywood film. Uh, like how there's one time where the Contras tried to assassinate you in the, in your sleep. <laughs> uh, we talk about that a little bit. That's yeah, pretty. Uh, yeah. Uh, what happened was like, like in any organization, there's always a rogue element that, that exists. Uh, and it, it exists in our military. We have guys that are but belong to biker gangs or steal weapons to sell on the black market. I mean, it's, it's, it's a made of humans. So we have that, that flaw. And what happened was in, in, in a camp that was run by a guy named Suicida, who was one of my favorite guys. He was the only non, uh, non-commissioned officer of all the camp commanders. All the other ones had been in the military as officers. And he, he got murdered. Um, and in his absence, two of the guys, uh, Krill and Cara de Malo became rogue. They started robbing cattle and forcing people to pay money and taking people's Jeeps and using them for their own good and drinking in the town and whoring around. And, and uh, very shortly thereafter, word got to us. And my boss said to me, he says, go fix it. So uh, I was going over there with, uh, with a Honduran captain, very good friend of mine, to uh, and another Nika, uh, from the uh, from the headquarters in, uh, in, in Tegu. And we landed and um, the first commander that was waiting for me there was Krill. And he had this big ass bodyguard who I uh, gave him some money to, hey, go bring us some some drinks from the, the little town down down the road. And, and Krill, of course, not knowing what's going on, says, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I grabbed him, we put him in the helicopter. And my Honduran buddy uh, took him back, the captain, and at first he resisted. He was armed, of course. We were all armed. And he, uh, he started to resist. And I said, look, this is not a request. And you got to understand that you know me. I've helped you train and everything else. I'm giving you my word that you're going to be safe, but you need to go back and talk about what's going on here. And I hope you do it the easy way because we're prepared to do it the hard way. So he got on the helicopter. I took his weapons. I wasn't about to let him in a helicopter with weapons. Took his weapons, which again, pissed him off. And uh, he, he flew out. Here comes his bodyguard back and he's all upset. Where, where'd he go? Oh, yeah, he went with the captain to back to town. So we go to the camp, which in retrospect, it was a mistake. Uh, I got greedy. Went back to the camp and uh, their camp and I'm walking around 
and I'm getting, hey, Major, how you doing? And I'm getting some dirty looks also from some of the guys. I'm going like, something's off. Uh, I was not a trained case officer. I had never recruited anybody at that time. But a few months before at that camp, I had helped a young guy whose wife was sick. And he came to me and said, you know, Major, you know, my wife is ill and she needs some antibiotic. And I, I gave him the equivalent of $20, which is a, a ton of money for them back there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm, we're, we're walking through the camp and this is it's something out of, a, out of a comedy. Behind a bush, I hear, psst, psst, Major, Major. And it was this guy hiding behind the wood, woods, the, uh, the bushes that told me says, the Krills guys are planning to kill you tonight. And I said, okay, I didn't know whether to believe it, but I knew every, every time we went to a camp, we always stayed in the middle of the camp because they wanted to make sure that we were protected. Well, this time they give you these quarters and the farthest end of the camp. I said, hmm, that's a clue. And uh, <laughs> so uh, it, it was three of us there at the time. And as soon as it was dark, we literally crawled out of the back window, went up. There was a hill with big rocks on it. We set up a perimeter. I always carried a couple of grenades with me besides my, uh, my M16 and my, my Browning high power. And um, we took turns and sure as hell around midnight, you saw flashlights coming into the, into the room and ruckus and people yelling and where are they and this kind of crap. Uh, but they didn't, they didn't chase us. They did not, they would have, they would have gotten hurt because there was only one path to us and it was narrow enough that they weren't, they were going to suffer if they came after us. Um, so the, the next morning I walked back in with my guys. And when I walked into the chow hall, it was like, some of the guys are smirking because they're going like, wow, he's still here. And the other guys were like, Oh shit, he's still here. And, um, <laughs> That, that same day, I went and got the other guy that was that was missing. Um, I caught him in town. He was whoring around, drunk as a skunk, uh, hung over from the night before. And I made him an offer he couldn't refuse and got him with a helicopter also and brought him back there. And the camp, re, re, you know, regained his dignity and became a, a very valid camp, um, very productive camp. And yeah. Yeah, that's... My first two renditions in, in, in two days, not, not a bad score. Yeah, yeah, seriously, that's absolutely that's absolutely crazy, and um, there are definitely some some key lessons there. And there's one uh one that I really want to touch on. Um, there's this theme that permeates throughout your time in the CIA about gaining the trust of the people that you'd be working with, right? Like, what are some of the key takeaways about just building trust from your experience uh, helping train the Contras? Well, you know, like I said, I had no formal training. Uh, on intelligence at that time. I was strictly a Spanish-speaking PJ. And uh, my boss, uh, Colonel Ray, was the best boss I ever had, arguably, uh, said to me when I first set foot in Honduras, he said, your job is for them to love you and for them to need you. Make it happen. Aye, aye, sir. So, you know, I slept where they slept. I taught them everything that I could teach them. I brought in the supplies. I ate with them. I, you know, um, got sick with them. Uh, got shot at uh, with them, and the, the bonding was always there. Um, this particular example of, of the young guy that, that, that tipped me off was an anomaly because most of these camps were extremely welcoming uh, for me, and I felt very much at home. I always felt safe in the camps. That doesn't mean I was ever without a weapon, uh, but um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, 
there's a there's a line you write which i found quite interesting i would love for you to elaborate on too um treat people well but make it clear you're doing so from a position of strength uh what do you mean by that well you know it it, it happens in daily life um you know uh, if you're very polite uh there's people that take that as 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 a weakness and I've actually told people, I said, listen, just because I say please and thank you doesn't mean it's not an order. I always say please and thank you. But the part in the middle, you got to do it. And, you know, when, when, you, when you start dealing with the agency, for the most part, was working this, the diplomatic circuit. And that's a sophisticated circuit. You're, you're trying to go after, you know, foreign nationals in, in a particular country that you're trying to recruit. And... That's a different, very different kind of people that what I had to deal with with the Contras, which were all guys who were coming back, you know, talk about PTSD. I mean, these guys were living it as they were doing it. And, and, and later on in the, in the terrorism side of the house, uh, sitting down with a, with a guy, I recruited a terrorist in a Latin American country. And I sat across the table from him and I told him, I said, if you betray me, I will turn you back to the, you'll go back to jail. And you ain't gonna like it. Uh, so you, you, you gotta have that metal. You have to have that, that conviction that, look, I am, I'm your guy, but don't mess with me. And people read that, people read that. And again, right. the orphanage help. The, or, the, or, the orphanage, you said? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I learned to make friends and be tough at that orphanage pretty quickly, yeah, so. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, interesting. And I know, I know we're jumping around here, here a bit, um, but there's this theme of, uh, you know, high performance, human performance um, as part of my podcast. So I would love to get your perspective on high performing teams, um, you know, being in such uh, kinetic environments where high performance is of the utmost importance. Like what are some of the factors that in your opinion, you're drawing from your experience conducting these black ops that need to be there in order for our team to be high performing? First, they have to have team cohesion and they have to have determination. And this is what the kind of training that we undergo uh, uh, breeds into you. Um, the, the camaraderie of being in harm's way with somebody else is something a lot of, some people that will, never, will never understand, much less witness. And, you know, uh, obviously, uh, you know, I'm 71 years old, but I, can st I still kick the bag and I still do my, I work out five days a week. That's, that's part of my ethos. That's who I am. And to me, that was always uh, when, when we had, um, when we were in Shangri-La, which was uh, the, the um, radical Muslim place that I, that I was the chief at, I had, I had eight guys with me that were meat eaters, man. These guys were top of the line and we beat the crap out of each other in training. We did everything because you had to be in, in your A game and nobody ever complained and we ate well and we slept and we fought and we worked. So that, that work ethic, I think, carries through. And, and um, you, you see it in the agency. I, one example that I always like to use, uh, when Mike Spann got killed in Afghanistan, there was a, a case officer with him, Dave. And he was not, not a military background, where Mike Spann was a force recon Marine. Um, and, and Dave ended up just with the training that the agency had given him, which is weeks, not months, um, he literally fought his way out of there and saved, saved a reporter and, and did all kinds of incredible stuff 
just by himself and with a pistol. So, um, yeah, I, I think that, 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 that again, going back to believing in your mission and being ready for that mission and, and part of it is a big part of it is a, a physical, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to, to, to the mental aspects of performance, knowing, having the confidence that you can dig in really, really, really deep and, and, uh, and, and still be there. Yeah. Yeah. And how much does the idea of this, like, uh, you hear it here in business a lot of the time, uh, tone at the top, right? They see the leader doing, doing this stuff and then the people below them are, they just see that like, this is, this is what I do. And this is kind of what I also expect of you. Well, it's, it's lead, lead by example. And you know, uh, I, um, in, in late later in, in my life and you see it in the book, um, I gave up some high position jobs to go back on the street. The last three years that I did in the agency was, uh, was on the ground. And um, I had my guys, the biggest compliments that they were always pay me was, he says, you know, you're the only senior guy that we've ever worked with that picks up brass and unloads trucks. And I said, I can't ask you to do anything that I haven't done. And um, I, I think that that was, that was, that was that message. I mean, they, you know, I, I, with my kids, I always tell people, so kids don't listen to you. They watch you. And what they see is what they will really emulate. Yes, you reinforce it with your words, but if you're saying this and doing that, uh, it, it will not take hold. And I always found out that that was the leadership. I was blessed with that leadership style. Uh, the bosses that I had were, like I said, guys like uh, Colonel Doty, you know, Dewey Claridge, Jose Rodriguez, Kofor Black, uh, all, all these guys were unique in their own kind that they were team builders and they were there 16 hours. If you were there 16 hours. So. Yeah. 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 That's great. Uh, shifting gears here again, and this is particularly timely, uh, this question, given what's going on in the, the Russia Ukraine situation right now, you write in the book, when it comes to coming up against our adversaries, you mentioned how this kind of generally speaking, Americans have this ingrained sense of fair play can also put us at a disadvantage when going up against, um, like, yeah, some of our adversaries. Did you see that play out during your time in the CIA as well? Yeah, I think that that permeates, um, um, at least at, at the rookie level, once, once you face the realities of combat or the realities of doing dangerous stuff in, in dangerous areas, you understand that you, you cannot, in martial arts terms, you cannot be fighting with Queensberry rules when the guy is an MMA fighter. You know, you're going to get your ass kicked every time because, you know, it's, it's, it's a different world. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I honestly believe that, um, you know, we, we try to wear, wear the white hat. Uh, you know, I think the American ethos is still the cowboy. Uh, I like to think so. Uh, the white hat is something we're proud of wearing. We want to have a higher uh, moral reason for the things that we do. Um, but when you're working with terrorism, when you're working with car uh, narco traffickers, human traffickers, um, you, you're dealing with the kind of people that will betray you, that will set you up, that will sell you to the highest bidder. And uh, that, that is uh, something that I think the agency uh, transitioned to. Uh, when, when, we, when terrorism started getting serious in, in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, Nick Rowe getting killed in the Philippines, you know, some of the, uh, the, uh, the people that were being killed in, in, uh, in, in different, out of uh, different embassies and stuff like that. Um, the agency gravitated towards 
the realization that, hey, look, we, we're dealing with a different kind of people now. For, in order to get after these targets, we have to recruit a little different, and, but we definitely have to train our, 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 our men and women a lot different. And a, a lot of people, again, because of Jason Bourne, believe that everybody in CIA carries a shoulder holster with a Walther PPK, right? Um, we were arguably the most gun phobic organization in the federal government. The paramilitary guys, that's a different story. We were a, a different niche within the operational realm. But the agency for the most part was gun phobic because our, our job called for subtlety, discretion, tradecraft. Well, you know, when the CIA does the mission, the first thing that you got to realize is it goes through exhaustive intel collection, exhaustive intel analysis. Then you have meticulous planning and experts execution. That takes a lot of focus and a lot of, a, a lot of work. So it, it, it is part of the business, but for us, it was the subtleties of things. We, we operated solo. Uh, I, I didn't have a backup until I was in the Philippines. I operated, so I met guys on the, on, in, in the streets in, in, in a Latin American country uh, that was really, really dangerous all by myself. And that was the way all my colleagues operated for, for decades. Um, but terrorism changed that and enforced the training. They, they came up with the training course. It was for case officers uh, going to dangerous areas. And that was the first time I went through that course. Um, in, in, uh, it was three weeks long and it was really high speed, really, you know, room clearing, hand-to-hand -hand stuff, uh, driving, pit, pitting maneuvers, crash and bang. We started gravitating more to that. And, and to the point that now, I mean, uh, the greater majority of our case officers have had substantial, not only substantial training, but the greater majority have had substantial experience being in harm's way with people outside of the dip circuit. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, it's interesting. Um, kind of reading how you as a case officer recruit agents on the ground to collect information for you, right? It's, you talk about recruiting from strength versus exploiting weaknesses and how it can really be, it's very much a long game in terms of uh, utilizing these agents, right? It could take years and years and years before you can really see a meaningful sort of difference in terms of the the value of this agent or the intelligence that they're giving they're giving you. Yeah, you know when I say that we recruit uh, by for strengths uh, rather than 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 weaknesses is don't get me wrong. We 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 recruit people that have weaknesses. Uh, we don't exploit the weaknesses. I've in the twenty five years I've never heard of a honey trap. Uh, operation or, or anything like that. That, that. That's just not what we do. But our, our opposition does. You know, the, 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 all the, the Soviets, especially, you know, you, you have your Russian and your Chinese and de facto the Cubans, which were trained under them and, and same thing with the Nicaraguans. They do play hardball. And, and people that, that travel to these places, um, your rooms are going to be bugged. Uh, all of a sudden you'll become irresistibly handsome to the most beautiful women that you've never even been able to set eyes on. And they are, they do play the honeypot. They do compromise you. They will drug you and take pictures of you with little girls or whatever the hell it is. We don't do that. I, I, I'm telling you, the agency has never done that. Not in my lifetime. And 
So recruiting by, for strengths, you're not exploiting a weakness in the individual. Now you may have an agent that has a gambling problem. Well, you don't exploit that gambling problem. You try to resolve it. You try to get them some kind of, uh, you know, uh, mitigation. You get them, you know, some training. You get them whatever it is. Uh, they might have a drinking issue, and, and you don't give them more booze, so they're dependent on you. On the contrary, you want them to be functional. So that, I think that that is something again that I'm very proud, and that people seldom hear about the agency because they lump all intelligence services the same. You know, the, the Brits don't do that either. You know, the the, uh, the but the, the people that play hardball that that's that's their mo. That's their mo. You know, and yeah, yeah. That was that was one of the the big surprises for me uh, when I was reading the book was that the the honeypot honeypot is that how you say yep. it? Yes. the yeah. honeypot traps um and how they are they are used uh, cool. for sure used by you know as you say giving examples of you know people like russia and the chinese um i i, I didn't i didn't realize that i thought that was you know something that the, the movies might have you know no as a matter or, of yeah. fact there, there was there, there was a there was a very uh, you could probably google this there was an incident in in a uh, in a communist country i don't remember if it was russia itself or one of the satellites where uh, a, a young marine you know again became irresistibly attracted by this beautiful girl and and he was compromised of course he was caught and, and of course reprimanded but yeah it's it's, it's not uncommon um they also use what we call cold pitch, where you just walk up to somebody and you say, hey, look, man, I give you a bunch of money if you'll just come work with me. And we don't do that. We don't do cold pitches. Um, very, very seldom do we do cold pitches. And, and the, the, the ones that I did, I had been working the target for a long time and I, I knew what the weakness was. And I had ways of, of compromising them. And I did that with a North Korean, as, as you saw in the, uh, in the book. They allowed me to tell one of two stories uh, of, of that uh, uh, mo modus operandi of mine, but the uh, the um, it's it's a different ballgame uh, for 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 our folks out there, and you know you you have this uh, Havana syndrome stuff going down now, where you know you have people suffering from some mysterious illnesses all over the, all, all over the world, and our people, you know, agency and State Department and, and some of the military folks. So we, 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 there's definitely a different set of rules and I'm very proud of that. Yeah, we, you know, the easy road would be to torture people, not waterboard them, uh, to compromise them. That's the easy thing. But I, the, having the moral high ground, I think it's, it's, uh, it's an important fiber that we all share. Yeah, yeah. Can we, can we go over Cooper's colors real quick? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know that that is something that I've uh, I've used throughout my career. I, I went through the Cooper course um, in I think it was like in 80, 86 or eighty seven before going to the the terrorist uh, assignment. And um, the Cooper's colors are a matter of awareness levels. And there's there's a story uh, in the book uh, about me in the Philippines with the sparrow hit folks. And what I learned is that awareness beats quick draw every single time. So Cooper's colors, Cooper was a colonel that opened up a, 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 a training center in, in Arizona, I think it is. And the way that he taught the people was the four colors of white, yellow, orange, and red. He said, if you are walking around 
in yellow or orange and something happens, you're going to die. I don't care who you are. You're going to, you're going to lose, you know, you may not die, but you're going to lose your job, your mission. He said, you should only be in white when you're at home kissing your wife. The rest of the time you live in yellow and yellow doesn't mean always have your hand in your gun and doing this kind of crap. No, it's just being aware, walking into a restaurant, knowing where the exits are, knowing where to sit when you're driving, you know, make sure that the, the, you can see the tires in front of the car ahead of you. If you can see the tires of the car in front of you, that means you can swerve and not hit them and, and avoid an attack where people tend to get right behind their exhaust, uh, which again, you're, you're, you're doing yourself a, a disservice. Uh, you get to a light, being, you're sitting in a light and it's not about paranoia. You go, oh, something was to happen. Yeah, I could go that way. And then you go back to your radio. It's, it's being aware. That way in, in yellow, you detect potential harm. Then you escalate to orange. And in orange is where you formulate a plan quickly on what if. So you're walking down the street and, and these guys are across the street and all of a sudden they cross to your side of the street. Well, if you don't see that because you're you know, thinking about your girlfriend or whatever, you don't know what you're walking into. Well, most important thing is awareness in yellow, I saw that potential threat. And in this case, you know, you, you avoid, which is, again, is a great option. But if you can't, let's say that you, you know, they got guys on both sides of the street, then you got to come up with a plan. And that's, that's when you execute. Orange is where you formulate your plan of action. And when the threat proves to be real, then you go to red. And that's when you execute, execute, execute. Right, right. My kids, my, my kids knew that from when they were yay high. <laughs> Uh, so I'm guessing you probably still carry that yellow mindset. Uh, Absolutely. 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 Yeah. Cooper, Cooper used to have a say, Colonel Cooper used to have a saying that if you ever get a speeding ticket, you are not in yellow. <laughs> right. So you right. should always be looking for cops and looking for whatever, you know? So yeah. that, yeah. 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 Um, when it comes to you being able to tell or, or not tell things about your job uh to people while you're in this AA, like did you have to keep like everything pretty much everything a secret to like your loved ones like your your wife and your, and your family was there some things you could you could tell them like how yeah. could you well as, as you saw in the book my wife got involved in in, uh, in some moderate uh, you know operations that she did a very good job in and, and it was quite thrilling and exciting for her but I, I, to this day, my, my kids will know of my exploits when they read the book. Uh, I've never talked to them about my firefights with the Contras or the Sparrows of the Philippines or any of that stuff for two reasons. One of them, I, I didn't want to make them paranoid or, or make them feel threatened. I mean, that was my world, not theirs. Um, with my wife, I wish I would have been a little bit more open uh, not necessarily in specifics, but in the nature of my business and the potential consequences, because, you know, if, 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 if my neighbor Joe has a bad day at his insurance company means that they got a real big claim and that they're going to have to go, go, go to court with, with this kind of stuff. When I have a bad day, somebody's either compromised or dead. And I never allowed my wife 
in to that part and i wish i should have because it's 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 hard to 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 have sympathy for something that you don't understand so i i i believe that if i had to do it over again i would have been a little bit more open with my wife as far as the risk and the severity without ever giving up sources and methods which of course i could not do right right okay interesting let's talk about this dynamic of the cia versus washington dc politics um and how that's been to the detriment to the cia at times right you talk about uh iran contra and how that affected things yeah yeah you know it's 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 sad because um my my agency like the fbi in in, in the last decade has been heavily politicized and the first thing that they teach you when you go to the farm for spy school is we don't do politics we don't do policy we steal secrets and we do covert action that's what the agency does. We don't have opinions. We don't have political stickers on our cars. Uh, we're not allowed to, because you are, you're supposed to be neutral in your profession. Uh, if, if, you, if you watch uh, a uh, presidential, um, you know, uh, what do they call it? Um, you know, where they hold the meeting, the, the situation report of the president does one every year, whatever it is. And you'll see the, the, the right wing and the left wing boo and applaud. But the military guys in the front, they have their hands in their, on their lap and they don't move. They don't nod their heads this way or this way. They are just, and the message that they're sending is we are neutral. We are professionals. And, and, and I think that that's very important to, to all of us. Um, the, the agency has become politicized and we've faced some grave mistakes, um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the Iraq invasion uh, were things that were, were very badly uh, manipulated and, 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 other, and other decisions. But there's got to be a political component anyway. I mean, the agency has to have the approvals of the president, which is a political figure. And, and, and you are definitely vulnerable to the swings of government whims, you know, or changes of government or something like that. I try to point that to, uh, to people about, about, about Russia and, and China, you know, they don't have congressional oversight and they don't, they don't, you know, we, we have to, our, our, our long-term plans are four years. till so the next election, what are we going to do? And if there's a change of president, you could have a very severe change of, of policies and stuff like that. The Russians or the Chinese do not suffer that. They have 50 year plans and they will implement their 50 year plans because they have continuity and, you know, and, and, and just that, 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 that particular uh, luxury. So we are handicapped. That's one of the big prices that we pay is for, for democracy is that we do have, you know, substantial oversight and that we are affected by the different administrations as they come and go. Interesting. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So let's get into these uh, last handful of questions here. What's your perspective on the current Russia-Ukraine situation and the impact that that'll have on the U.S. or, or might have in the U.S. in the future, just given your, your experience? You know, I, I am not, I don't have any insider information of what's going on because I read what you read. I'm no longer right. part of the organization. 
but I do have the background where I've seen you know, certain things that 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 uh, that kind of form my my opinions on these things. First and foremost, it, there was a Roman general that that quoted, "If you want peace, prepare for war." You know this from the martial arts. From your posture to your demeanor, you can avoid a fight. You can win a fight without ever swinging a, a kick or a punch or taking a guy to the ground and choking him out. So weakness to a predator is something you cannot afford to show. You know, there's people that will beg for mercy from a, a terrorist or, 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 a, or, or a, you know, a guy who's a, a serial killer or something. And people don't understand that when you show weakness, it empowers that other individual. It really does. And that that's from microcosm to macrocosm. Um, if you are, a, you will have a country that has the military that we have, and we have the credibility that we should have. There, there's been certain administrations where, you know, I remember in the uh, late 70s where um, we uh, gave away the Panama Canal, Russia invaded Afghanistan, uh, Salvador and Nicaragua started exploding. Um, and the difference when all of a sudden we come back and we systematically approach countering those kind of things and say, no, we're not going to let you get away with this. And, and uh, you know, it's, the, it's the bully effect. It's the bully effect. Uh, if, if people see you, that they can bully you and you let them, you're done. Um, this whole Ukraine thing is something that I, I wish we would have avoided uh, by showing greater strength of character and also being a better ally. Yes, we're training some other people and everything else, um, but you know, if 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 the, if the if the cat's away, the mats will play, and if, if that's what they're seeing, they're they're going to see it. Look at look at how China's looking at Taiwan right now. You don't think they're watching everything we're doing in the Ukraine? Because they say this will mirror if we go into Taiwan. This is what what the Americans will do. So I, I'm a firm believer in having a strong military. I'm a, a strong believer in having a very strong intelligence services. And I'm a very strong believer in us as a country, as a nation, being respected by our allies. And if not respected by our enemies, feared. Because again, that's the way it is in, in a bad neighborhood. That's the way it was at the orphanage. That's the way it was in me growing up in Hialeah. And that's the reality of the world. If you look like food, somebody's going to eat you, whether you're a country or you're a person. Yeah, you've got to you got to show strength to the bully, like you said. Rather, it's micro or or macro. Whereas the bully on the street or the the bully that's a that's a country. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Firm believer in that. Yeah, and I think that of the people that are that are like me who like history, uh, you could go back and time and time again and see that. History does, unfortunately, repeat itself because we make the same mistakes over and over again. So. Yeah, 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 for sure. Let's say we meet again on the street in 10 years. What would you want to be telling me that you've accomplished or created since this conversation? Maybe personally or professionally? Well, you're um, retired, but... <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly fit still and, fairly, and very healthy still, I'm, uh, but I am 71, so 
my, uh, my goals are to ride more horses, ride more motorcycles, go to the, the range a little more often, um, stay fit. And I, I call my book, my last firefight because I, I believe the black ops is, is something that is such a new facet for me. Um, it was a, a, a challenge. I'm a very good writer, uh, but I'm an operational writer. So I literally had a coach who would come back and say, okay, well, well, what was Chase wearing at that time? Who gives a shit? You know, I don't care. No, no. Yeah, there's a difference between telling a story and taking the person and putting them in the story, letting him experience it. So I learned, learning that was a, was a very big learning curve for, for me for the book. And I, I hope that it came across that we did drag you into some of these incidents of how I was really feeling internally when this happened or that happened. So, so for me, the book is, is, is my last professional uh, firefight. I will still do some of the training that I, that I love doing with our special operations guys. Uh, you know, gun, gun fighting stuff and some tradecraft stuff, but I primarily, I'm, I want to drop my rucksack. It's time for me to drop my rucksack after this one. <laughs> Unless it turns into a movie, of course. Well, if it turns into a movie <laughs> or at least a documentary, which I think it's better suited for a documentary, I, th I feel safer at being a documentary than, than getting Hollywoodized. Right. Uh, right. Uh, I, uh, obviously would support that and, and would get involved in that. But that is something that fate puts in your path and it happens, it happens. It was not part of the original plan, although overtures have already been made from several chapters where people coming in and say, hey, we would like to do a documentary on this book. And just knowing what they know from, from little snippets, not from actually even seeing the book. So um, yeah, the reality for me is, you know, I, I started working when I was 13. I went in the military when I was 20. Uh, I've never had a non-service job since I was 20 years old. And uh, at, at, uh, at 70, it's, it's, I think it's time to let the younger generation uh, and for me to enjoy a little bit more whatever time I do have, because there isn't a year that I don't lose a colleague. Right. And they're usually younger or you know, a little older, a little younger, but I'm, I'm on the wrong side of the calendar. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What does your daily routine look like? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a very disciplined person and um, I get up early in the morning, uh, relatively, not my 5.30s that I did for all my career, but I don't put an alarm clock, but by 7, 7.30, I'm up. I'll have my breakfast, my espresso. First thing I do is look at my emails because I still do some overseas advising kind of stuff. And because of the time differences, that, that's my ethos. I mean, if, you, if you're in the other side of the world and you send me something last night, I have to look at it that before you close at the other end. So uh, I look at my emails, make sure there's nothing work related. Um, like I said, I, I work out, uh, I try to work out at least five days a week. Uh, sometimes I take a day off to go to the range and I make that as, as dynamic as, as I can. I love to read. So I always end my, my, my day with uh, reading in bed until, until I succumb to sleep. But for, for the last uh, several months and, and, and definitely the last few weeks with, with the coming of the book, I mean, you guys are wearing me out <laughs> <laughs> in, in a good way. And I'm very, very happy that that's, that's, this is that much interest. I really appreciate, you know, when I have professionals like yourself reading my book and, and learning something from my book and um, having some very pertinent questions about what the book is all about, 
that's that's a badge of that's a badge of honor for me so thank you yeah 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 of course yeah you're you're welcome um so as is the name of the podcast the driving force podcast what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life i think the driving force has been god uh, my belief in him and um my belief in democracy the the belief that good guys do wear white and that we cannot we cannot afford evil to defeat us because the consequences are not mine you know i i see what's going on now and i'm sitting here going like why couldn't i have done something about this back then why is my next generation or my offspring having to face these things all over again so I, I think that for me, the, the, the biggest drive is always having a cause, whether you say you want to be an athlete, you just got to be able, you got to be willing to pay the price of admission, you know, and if you don't have that conviction, if you don't have that gut determination, I am going to be an NBA star, I am going to play professional baseball, I am going to be a CIA officer, I am going to be a SEAL or a pararescueman. Um, we, we, uh, one of my best friends uh, was... Uh, Force Master Chief for SEALs. His name is Steve Bailey. Uh, you talk about a jujitsu guy. He's the one that introduced me to Horian because I brought him to the outfit afterwards. And, and Steve always used to tell me because he ran buds at one time uh, earlier in his career uh, before being Force Master Chief. And he used to say, he says, Rick, he says, I could spot the spandex athletes the first week. And I said, spandex athletes. He says, yeah, these are the guys that are God-given. They, they, you know, they're the perfect height, the perfect fitness. They played all the right sports. They can run, they can swim. But they are not going to be uncomfortable. And they got nothing to prove. And then you see this scrawny guy. I, I you know, my, my, I told you about Scuba School being one of our most demanding schools. Yep. My, my swim partner was uh, Gary McGuire. Uh, to, to this day, a dear friend of mine, but Gary was thin and, and happy kind of guy. And, but he has something to prove and he made it through. He became a pararescue man. He, he actually wrote a little book about it uh, way back when, but anyway, he's just, uh, I, I think having that determination, no matter where you're going, that leads into the performance. You cannot have the discipline to go to a gym or to go to a sports or something, or even your work ethic. Um, if you don't have that, you're not going to accomplish the big things. That's the real performance. You know, I, I'm a big Formula One guy. I love Formula One. Ah, oh, me uh, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a big fan. I've gone to several races, and and uh, and and for me, what fascinates me is first of all, these guys are real athletes. Oh yeah. The amount of preparation and physical fitness that they have to have, the reflexes they have to have. But then I'm also fascinating by the attention to detail to where a pound difference in a tire can win or lose a race. And, and that all comes from a, I don't know, a very anal retentive focus to perfection. I mean, and there is no perfection in, in life. I mean, you strive for excellence, uh, but perfection is, is very hard to read. But when you have that drive, look what you accomplish, you know? What's what's yeah. your favorite F1 team? I like McLaren. I like McLaren. McLaren. Not wrong with McLaren. I'm a yeah. big Red Bull. I'm a big Red Bull fan. That's my that's my team. Okay, that that's probably my my second. Uh, yeah. No, great to see Verstappen. Yeah. Uh, I get it. 
Yeah. And they've had, you know, they've had a few guys uh, precede him that were big quality guys too. And it's, it's a good team. Uh, Christian Horner is one of the guys that I think is just one of the greatest team leaders out there. And, and you can see that he is, he's got everything we were just discussing, you know, he's been there, done that. He's got the, the energy and, and, and the leadership. So, yeah. 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 Awesome. So lastly here, before I wrap up any, any sort of parting words of, I guess, wisdom you'd like to leave the listeners with? Yeah. Really just anything. Well, you know, I, I, I think that um, my life has been dedicated to service especially once I got into the agency, even more so than pararescue, because I missed the boat literally there. Um, as far as uh, contributing beyond becoming a PJ and paying that price. Um, I just hope that people take the time to understand the agencies and our, not only CIA, but look what's happening with our law enforcement. You're talking about an ungrateful mistress, the threat that these guys are, uh, are under. And I think that the, 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 our civilization, our, our masses need to understand that these people go into harm's way every single day so you don't have to. And I think that my agency needs to do a better job and our government needs to do a better job of highlighting the good, punishing the bad. I have no problem with a police officer that does something really egregious paying the consequences or CIA guy that does something. Hey, that's, that's, that's the way it is consequences. But since we don't know how good we have it in this country, most Americans don't travel to real third world sites. I mean, people, Oh yeah, I've been to third world. I went to Cancun. That's not third world. (laughs) Okay. And and you were there for four days drinking martinis with little uh, umbrella stuff. Yeah. And Um, all inclusive. Exactly. So we, we don't, you know, we don't, have anything to gauge what our country really represents and how good we have it here. And I think that's why a lot of people take it for granted. So it's, it's not a precise thing, but it's, it's a matter of knowing what we have and knowing what it takes to keep it. And that individuals like my peers and my law enforcement brethren and my military brethren, um, you know, it's really telling that 2% of the American population at any given time serves in the military. That means the other 98% of the parents don't have any skin in the game. So. Interesting. It's an interesting way to, put, to think about it, yeah. Yeah. I had a, a, a very dear friend of mine who's very conservative, very wealthy, uh, asked me one morning, we were, uh, as a matter of fact, we were at the Indy 500, and um, he said to me, so, so Rick, what do you think about all this boots on the ground in Afghanistan? This was about six years ago, I guess it was. Uh, and I said, uh, I said, well, Mike, it depends. And he looks at me like, you, it depends. And I go, yeah, it depends. Because if you're talking about boots on the ground now, you're talking about my kids. If it was boots on the grounds for me, I'd go tomorrow. But now I have a different kind of skin in the game is my kids are at the pointy end of the spear. And, and um, I, I think that when people go to vote on anything, it, they should have skin in the game. How, how, do, you, how do you mean? Like in oh. terms of what the skin, oh, the skin well, in the okay. game? If, 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 you, if you have a son or a daughter in the US military 
And this particular campaign is preaching defund the police or defund the military. Right. Uh, and, you know, as, as an average American, if you don't have a kid in the, in, in the police department or in the military or in one of the intelligence uh, things, you go, you know, yeah, we, we do need to cut back some money on, on this. We got we, We're spending too much money on things. You don't have skin in the game, whether it is as a professional yourself, the police officer that has skin in the game, but the, 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 uh, the, the, the parents of those people that do go in harm's way, they know they know what the, their, their offspring is going through. And, and I'm a firm believer in that. You know, I think that one mistake that we, that we uh, made in this country, and unfortunately it was under Reagan, I believe, was doing away with uh, some kind of mandatory service. And I don't mean just military. Not everybody's meant to be a GI Joe, but there's very, very, very few jobs in the private sector, investment banking maybe one of them, that is not replicated in the military. If you want to be a law enforcement, you can do it in the military. You want to be a firefighter, you could do it on it. You could be a paramedic. You could be an elite pararescuer. You can be a doctor. You could be a you know. You could be an attorney. You know. You have we have JAGs. There, there's nothing that you can HR. So right, we should have some kind of service, kind of like the Israeli model, with everybody serves two years doing something. Uh, and it could be, you know, it could be AID for all I care. If, if our kids had to go overseas for 30 days before they graduated high school to a real third world country, they come back with a different opinion of, of, of our country and what we have. And I think they would be a lot more appreciative of what we enjoy and what they enjoy from their families. So, yeah. And, prob- and probably also of, of the military as well. Oh, absolutely. 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 Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, Rick, this has been uh, awesome. Just a great conversation. So thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me and for uh, helping me uh, promote the book because I think you understand now my reasons behind it are uh, are, are quite important to, to me. So thank you. Yeah, of course. I hope to meet uh, you in person one of these days. Yeah, yeah. No, I would, I would love, love to. Where can people go to find you online if you want to connect? The... the, uh, the um, www.rickprado.com takes you to the website and that has my background. It's got the book and it has a way of, of people they, they can leave messages that, that get to me securely. And then I can, you know, establish a, a side uh, connection there. But uh, yeah. Awesome. And you all call us a visit my website, chaserosa.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks to everyone who's listening and see you next time.